So in the Judges cycle, I won't throw the image up, um, but in general, we've talked about in Judges, if you're new to this, Judges has a similar cycle over and over and over, and it keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And the cycle is Israel doesn't really obey God. They say, we're going to do our own thing, right? We're going to try, you can go your own way. I don't know why it's in my head, but it is now. So, uh, man, what band is that? Uh, it doesn't matter. Anyway, so they're going to go their own way. They're going to do their own thing, right? And so they do that, and they get away from the Lord, and they start being influenced by the culture, and they worship the Baals, the Asheroth, and, and all these other gods and then things get bad for them and then these people that they were supposed to drive out and say we're not going to worship with you we're not going to be like you we are set apart to be like God they decide to be like them and then over and over it says that they did evil in the sight of the Lord what are the two evils we remind each other of every week they forgot God they worshiped idols. That's what happens every single time. And if you're reading this story back to back or you're listening to the intro of every sermon we have, you should roll your eyes in your head to be like, gosh, why are we doing this again? It's so irritating. And on the one hand, it's irritating if you're just reading it back to back to back and you're catching these phrases. But on the other hand, it's like if you've ever been a parent, you're there, right? You're like, why are we doing this again? When I say go to bed, you go to bed. Why do you understand? It's like, no, you don't need to. You got to go to bed. That's what you got to do. When I say don't hit your brother and sister, I literally mean it. Never, ever hit your brother and sister. Right? And you notice we say this over and over and over. But then you fly back from that because parents are right. We, we get it because we're parents. And we, nah, man, how many times has God walked to our bedroom every night because we won't be quiet and go to bed? How many times does God say, I told you not to do this. And you're still doing it. God's doing that to all of us. And that's one of the points. It's the main thing that we see here. We find ourselves in judges in all these stories that these people aren't these big atrocious idiots. We're so removed from them because we're so much better because we have churches and we have ministries and we have the Baptist convention. We're messing all of it up. We're just as corrupt as they are. We're struggling just like that. We're better at hiding it. Maybe we're not sacrificing children and we don't have little altars all up in our house that are directly called idols, but we're doing the same things. And that's what we're trying to call it every week. And I don't like that every week, sometimes it feels like we're just throwing this on you. Look at all the idols in your life. Look at these things. But if you're like me, you're forgetting it every week. And you're going to go back to these things that, that aren't what the Lord has called you to. You're going to do things for your glory, for your happiness, for your desires. And they ultimately end in destruction and death. And God has called us to a cycle of repent and believe in the gospel. That's what Jesus came. He said, repent. The kingdom of heaven is here. It's now. Repent. Change your mind. Believe in the gospel. Put all your hope, all your assurance in the gospel. The belief and the hope that God has come down, that he has taken on your sin, that he has made it right, that he has died and rose again, that when you believe in him, you are declared righteous, and then you live for his kingdom, for his purposes, because that's what God always intended. He created the world full of good things for us to enjoy for his glory. That's what we're supposed to be doing, and we keep messing it up. And so I've got several pages of notes here about the first couple verses in, uh, in Judges. And as we were worshiping, I just felt led to, to skip it. <laughs> so, sorry. Uh, I don't ever do that. I always tell myself, don't do it. Just say it anyway. But I think, I think today we're, we are going to skip that because I think there's a deeper point here. I'm going to tell you the crash course in this story, though. And if I hit on some of the slides that make sense, you feel free to throw them up. But we're just going to go slow. Wade's like, hey, I'm the captain. That's right, you are. Uh, so, Here's, here's the thing we find. Israel again comes to God and they have, uh, well before that, they have served several gods. It's not just the Baals and Asheroth. If you look in verse 6, they start listing all of them. They list uh, the Syria, Sinon, Moab, gods of the Ammonites, gods of the Philistines. There are seven 
gods they are now worshiping. If you're a Bible geek person, the number seven stands out to you. There's a whole sermon on seven that I would love to go into. Let me just say this. God created the world in how many days? And all the, ah, trapped some of you. Gotcha. And then what did he do on the seventh day? Why did he rest? Because, Shabbat. Because it was complete. And then he gave that day as a holy day for us. The Sabbath is for man. It was given to us to rest. Why? We rest on the Sabbath. The reason you don't work on the Sabbath, I'm not saying literally Sunday. We're not seven-day Adventists here. We're saying in general, you take a 24-hour period or a large chunk of your week to say, I'm going to rest because I'm going to declare that it is finished, that the Lord has done it through Jesus Christ, through his creative work, that I'm going to leave even though the world stinks and my health is terrible and I can't get along with my family. We are going to rest and we're going to intentionally worship the Lord to say, you have completed it. That is the idea of seven days. That's the reason for Shabbat. And you can look in all the research, man, I'm getting off topic here, but you can look at all the research on how many things need rest. Land needs rest. You push land too hard, it doesn't work. Chickens need rest. You push them too hard, they don't produce. Cows need rest. Every creature is created for rest. In fact, whales in the oceans are starting to not survive as well and they're dying off because we push them to swim more and to work more because of the ways that we use the ocean and we push out different uh, oil things. And so whales are dying because they don't get rest. God created us for rest. Look all through, through uh, uh, science, all through history. We were created for rest. And so the number seven is significant in the Bible because it is a declare, declaration of completeness, of, of being fully formed. And so when they're now worshiping seven gods, there's a hint here for the Hebrews weeding. Wait a minute. If they're worshiping seven gods, they have now committed complete idolatry. This cycle is getting worse. There's a completeness here. And I don't want to Bible nerd out any more than that, but it's interesting. And when God responds and they cry out to God and they say, things aren't so good, God, because, you know, we're getting mowed over by the Ammonites and the Philistines and things are bad now. So can, can you kind of throw us a bone here, God? And he's like, look, we, we worship other gods and now it's not going so good. And God's response to them is pretty harsh. He says, did I not save you from? And he lists seven things he saved them from. Seven verse seven. God's doing this intentionally. He's saying, I've already given you complete rescue and you still don't believe it. You still have complete idolatry. You've still broken the marital covenant. We talked about this last week to play the harlot, the prostitute stuff. God cares deeply about this relationship with him and they just break it. Like we're not about it. We're gonna do our own thing. So God says, I will not save you. He said, I saved you from their hands. You've forsaken me. I will save you no more. Verse 14, go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. This is a challenging idea because, it, you, you know, you could pull aside and say, see, God's inconsistent. He ain't going to save them anymore. He ends up saving them, spoiler alert, over and over and over, several more times in history. This time, God acknowledges that they're crying out to him. Several weeks ago, we talked about um, uh, regret versus repentance. God recognized that he's treating, they're treating God just like any other God, just some bargaining tool, some vending machine. Say vending machine. You know how vending machines work? You put money in, you press button, vending machine gives you stuff. Money junk, money, junk, because most vending machines are full of junk, right? And that's what you want. That's what you want. This is the idea. They want to do for God so he does for them. There's this equation that happens in Israel for other gods. When you're serving Baal or Asheroth or whatever, you're going to the, the, the temple, you're sleeping around with all the prostitutes because you're doing this for your family. Ah, I'm going to sleep with all the people in the temple so that my family now has fertility. So my family can now have 
growth in their land or whatever. And it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. But the whole ra- rationale is that you're doing it. And so we get this idea, what I want, uh, what I need, I need and I want you because I want and I need X. I think there's some slide that I've got for that. But I want, yeah, so they go cry about this one. So the judgment for idolatry we see is idolatry. God lets them have this. He said, it says he sells them into this. God sold them into all these things because they have this attitude of what I want and need. I need you because I want, I need you to give me X. And really X is our God, right? It's not you. It's not the Lord. X is our God because we become our God in that situation. And this is the whole Genesis 3 thing. You hear me talk about every week because everything comes back to this. Our posture as a church, our posture as God's bride, our posture as individuals is we ultimately want to be God. We struggle just being image bearers. That's why Romans uh, 1 says that they exchange the truth of God for a lie. They worship and serve the creature creature over uh, the creator. This is our struggle. And so we have this exchange with idolatry. And Israel does this. And the interesting thing is that the second time they come to him, you know, God's saying like, hey, Hey, I want, I want you to, to understand, you need to, you need to write your check. You need to write your letter to other gods because you're trying to get after them. I'm not, I'm not your guy. You don't really care about me. I'm not your vending machine. And they come back and they say, say, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only deliver us this day. And so then they put away their foreign gods and among them, uh, and they serve the Lord. And I think it's interesting that they do have a change heart. They come back to God instead of saying, hey, hey, um, we've done this bad thing, and so we need you now. No, instead, there's this time they're saying, we have sinned against you, and, and we want you to do what you want. Now who's in charge? God's in charge, right? They put him in charge. And I think sometimes we, we recognize this bargaining. We're going to talk about this in a minute, but we recognize bargaining. If I do this, then I get this. Welcome to the West. Boop. Anytime someone has a problem, right? Whether we're talking about their finances or we're talking about, we always want to cut, what's your crux problem? Well, if you do this, then you do this. And that's the, that's the thing. And if you end up doing it, then it's all about you. And then that creates a want in us where I want this, I want this, so I need to do this. And everything starts spinning back to us. And you hear us preach so much here about the self-orbit and about things ultimately being about us because we are not in a culture full of people who are creating little idols in their house to worship the God of you know, making their grass grow greener. No, we serve this hidden idea where we have convinced ourselves that we need things that we don't need and things are important that, that aren't actually important. We tell each other things like, well, this is, this is how you're a good steward, but ultimately you're a good steward for who? For you. I want my kids to have a better life. Why? So you feel satisfied for giving your kids a better life. I want to, I really want to get a promotion. I think that'd really help people. But the deep crevice of your heart is like, actually, it makes me look better to be higher on the ladder. And so we hide and we twist these things. At least Israel is much more upfront with it. Like, yeah, we're just going to mix these things, and we got this, this idol and this idol, and we got this. We're going to erect these different statues. And I think that's the reason we hit this every week is because there's a heart posture here. It's why Jesus hits over and over in Sermon Mount the posture of your heart. There's something corrupt that's there. In verse 16, it says that God became impatient over the misery of Israel. It's an interesting phrase. Some translations uh, have, it, have it work out differently. It says his soul was grieved. Uh, he could bear it no longer. It's kind of like uh, 
the 15th time you've seen your kid do something that clearly hurts them, or the 100,000th time you've seen that relative drink themselves to throwing up, and you're just like, it grieves me. It gives me an impatience, an uncomfortableness that this is your lot in life, that you keep doing this because I love you. I don't want to see you drink till you throw up. I don't want to see you continue taking this medication that's clearly making you wacky. I don't want to see you do these things that are clearly damaging to your marriage. I don't want to see you do these things that are clearly damaging to the man I see you becoming, my son who's growing up, whatever. It grieves us. And this is where the, the Hebrew language of God is saying, he's sick of seeing them hurt themselves. He's sick of seeing their misery. And so then the story is left now. What's God going to do? You know, we see this pit between God's holiness and his compassion. When we went through the names of God, God says, this is what I am. And he lists these things. Uh, The Lord, Lord, a God compassionate, full of grace and mercy. Right. And we went through that in Exodus. God declares about himself. One of the things mentioned was his compassion. And we see this tension where God says, I don't want to save you anymore. But then he he still does. Why? And we want to see that as an inconsistent thing. I want us to see that as an actual marital love that God has for people. He doesn't want to save them because he doesn't want this ridiculous relationship that they keep proponing to him. Like, oh, we're going to keep adulterating our relationship with you and you're going to save us and then we're going to go mess up. Because like, nah, I'm not about that. What God wants is them to repent and to have the relationship, the covenantal marriage, the love that he called them to. And so he keeps being compassionate for them. He doesn't like seeing them in their, in their mess, in their misery. And ultimately, we see this holiness of God where he is perfect. He can't stand for them to keep playing the harlot, keep prostituting the relationship. He can't stand that. And he's so holy, and he says, ah, no, I can't have you near me. I can't do that. But he's also so compassionate. And so we see him keep saying, okay, I'm I'm still going to save you. I'm still going to forgive you. You come, and I'm going to repent. And then ultimately, that makes most sense to us when Jesus dies on the cross. We see a God who says, you know what? I'm going to take on all this. You can't follow your covenant. You can't. You're, you're just in so much debt to me for all your sin, for all your evil, even the things you don't realize. I was telling my boys the other day when Nikki and I had an art. Man, this is for free. It's in the notes. Uh, we had a terrible day. That was yesterday, wasn't it? Gosh, yesterday was terrible. There were some good things in the end, but oh, we, uh, we were yelling at each other in the parking lot. Our kids were watching. I mean, we were, woo, like it was bad. And, and this happened. We were just having attention, right? And so we're like, oh, it's okay. Married people argue. No, we shouldn't. Like we should be growing past this. Like we should be loving each other more. And I asked my kids, like I was sitting with my boys here in the office. It's like, hey, what do you think I should have done differently? <laughs> and Asher, Asher said, well, you should have stopped and prayed. I thought that was really, I was like, oh, ouch. Ouch. And one of the things, it was good though, it was really good. Um, and one of the things that we talked about was that God forgives us for things we don't even know we're wrong. Because Nikki and I's argument got to a point where we're like, I don't even know. Like, one of the kids was trying to say, well, yeah, you were mad that she turned the wrong way or she didn't listen to you and she was going to turn the wrong way. I was like, I mean, yeah, I said some things about that, but that wasn't the real argument. But man, we make really stupid things in the main argument sometimes, don't we? Like, it has nothing to do with how you put away the laundry. It has to do with the fact that I feel disrespected or whatever. That's not a real story in our situation. But you know what happens? It's not that you didn't unload the dishwasher. It's not that you always put the cups upside down on the top. It's that you don't really see me. You don't love me, right? And so that's the tension. And my kids, I was talking to them, I was like, man, God forgives us for things we don't even recognize. He loves us enough to take on all the stuff that that we don't even realize. The depth of our sin, the depth of my corruption, y'all will never know. I will never fully know. And we see that God's full compassion for us and all his knowledge, all his holiness and all his knowledge of you and everything about you. Instead of saying, you can never be enough or here are 613 laws that you have to follow to me or here's all these rituals that will only make you. That's, God says, no, no, I'm going to take this all on. I'm going to die. I'm going to take this on so that when I see you through your faith in me, you will become righteous. My blood will cover all the evil and things you've done. 
That's the gospel. And so again, we see God's compassion, His holiness at tension here. And now we get to the tension of what's going to happen next, right? So Israel, the Lord is upset. He's, he's impatient over their misery. Now we get Jephthah. And there is just so much to say about this, this dude. Um, and if you have studied about him all week, you're probably sick of it. Uh, I'm just kidding. But there's just so much here. And everyone's got tons of opinions on this. And I think there's a lot of ways to sidestep it. But as we know, the judges keep getting worse and worse. And in fact, it keeps getting more and more on them, the amount of stuff that they've got to resolve because uh, Israel's armies, everyone's kind of failing at this point. No one's really doing great. If you look at kind of the, uh, uh, the regional ways things are happening and the amount of armies and the amount of people, just all keeps being a mess. It's no longer unified. They start killing each other eventually. It's, it's a nightmare. Um, look in uh, chapter 11, verse 29. We're going to talk about uh, Jephthah and how he comes in. So uh, the Ammonites, they've been called to arms. They're going to they're gonna take on Gilead. And we see that at the 11, verse 1, that um, Jephthah was a, Gildeite, a Giladite, and he was a mighty warrior but he was the son of a prostitute. And then it goes on to say how he was kicked out and then he ends up like living in uh, another area and he gathers around him uh, a bunch of unsavory characters. He's like a crime boss, man. This is like the mafia. He's like, hey, you know, make a mafia, you can't refuse. Right? So Jephthah is kind of like becomes this big bad guy. And it, it's interesting that no matter how you read this story, you don't even actually understand how good or bad this guy is ever, except at the very end when he makes this really awful situation, there's kind of this like up and down of like, is he even worthy to be helpful? And I could, I could list all these reasons of scholars saying, here's why he was a bad guy all along. Here's why he's not so bad. Here's why, really, we just don't know. He's just a guy and he's doing stuff and he's making bad decisions and he comes from clearly uh, a bad background. He decides, hey, I'm going to uh, the uh, Gildei elders. They ask him, hey, will you, will you come and will you help us fight the Ammonites? And Jephthah says, you know what? He makes a bargain with them, which is another thing. We could talk about that. But he says, yeah, you know, if, if, uh, if this works out, then I'm going to be your leader and all that. But then we get to verse 29. And here's where everything kind of starts messing up. 11:29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. That's an important phrase. Because we see consistently in Scripture, when the Spirit of the Lord falls, now, now what God's desiring, God is affirming, God's will is moving, right? And it doesn't mean that things can't still be corrupted, as Nathan talked about earlier, right? There's still free will, there's still ways we can go on our way, but God is now resting His Spirit to empower and to do His will, right? So the Spirit of the Lord falls upon Jephthah. And, and again, if you were a Hebrew and you were reading these stories, that would be a trigger to you. You would say, like, oh, when the Spirit of the Lord falls, this is when things get better. This, things are good now. That's the idea. That's the attitude, right? Um, nothing else is needed. God wins, right? That's the idea all the time. So that's the expectation. And he, Jephthah, he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed by Mitzpah of Gilead and from Mitzpah to Gilead and he passed on to the Ammonites. He's going to go fight. But Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. This is important. If you will give the Ammonites into my hand... Then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Whatever comes out my house, that's what I'm going to offer up. That's a burnt offering, right? 
whatever. Uh, Verse 32, so Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hands. Verse 34, then Jephthah came to his home in Mitzvah. Ooh, the plot thickens. Whatever comes out of his house, right? Uh, And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines. Ah, la, 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 la. You try to do tambourines, right? So that's what he did. She comes out with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, there was neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take it back. He probably talks like a pirate. This is Jephthah. Now, again, we could read this story and just move past it because there's a lot of bad stories in Judges. And to be honest, we're full of a culture full of uh, tons of violence and Walking Dead and Game of Thrones. We've seen terrible things on TV and war movies and we love video games that just boom, 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 heads explode. So we could just pass off this story and be like, oh yeah, bad things happened to the ancients. They were bad people. They did bad things. No big deal. He's talking about burning his daughter as a sacrifice. Do you have a daughter? Do you know a little girl? Put your mind in here. This is a terrible thing. And he's doing it for, do we have fires here and burn people on Sunday mornings? Yes or no? No. Why? Because it's ridiculous. It's a terrible idea, right? And not only is it a terrible idea, God directly said he hates it. He abhors it. Deuteronomy 17, 31. He says, and this is, I abhor this. Don't worship like these people. The Lord says he hates it. There's several places actually in the Old Testament that God hates human sacrifice. But Jephthah, the Spirit of the Lord falls on him, and that's not enough. The story isn't the Spirit of the Lord falls on him, and he goes and has victory because the Lord hands him over. That's the typical story in Judges. This story is, no, I got to make a vow. I've got to promise something to this God so I get something in return. Or if something does happen, then this happens. I've got to be in control of the narrative. That's, that's the posture we see Jephthah have. This was a flex. And, and, and there's, no matter how you read this, whether or not he ends up sacrificing his daughter, however you try to parse that out, at the end of the day, Jephthah's saying, look at Jephthah. Look what I can do. If this happens, I will sacrifice, because I am so devout. I have control. I have power, right? And so the, the big three that come up, I love to also, he says, I cannot take it back, my vow, right? The thing is, he could take it back. He should have known that the scriptures say, you don't sacrifice in this way. More importantly, he should have known Leviticus, there's several ways to take back a vow. This isn't like a, oh, you made a vow, now you got to do it. God, uh, I'm going to break my knee for you. Dang it, now I got to go find a ham and break my knee. That's not how it works. There was ways to get out of vows and reverse them in Leviticus because God knows that we're dumb and we say things we don't mean sometimes, right? God loves us, has compassion on us. That's not Jephthah. And so three questions come up when we talk about Jephthah. Big three here. Did Jephthah sacrifice his daughter? Why did Jephthah make such a vow? Why did Jephthah keep his vow? We're going to hit those real quick because it's not the main point. But did he actually sacrifice his daughter? It's a big argument. Some people say, actually, what he meant was an animal, and he knew an animal would come out of his house. First century, no one, that didn't happen in ancient times. No one had dogs and cats in their house. He did not expect an animal. More importantly, the Hebrew clearly is not towards an animal. The Hebrew language here is clearly towards a human. He expected human to come out. Some people assume he expected like his mother-in-law or some maidservant or someone that he wanted to burn up to come out of the house. He wasn't expecting his daughter, right? I love my mother-in-law, all right? It's just a cliche thing to say mother-in-law and everyone laughs, so I do it. No one, no one judge my mother-in-law. So uh, I don't want to burn her. Don't clip that from the video. 
Okay, good. Okay, so this is, he was expecting this. And then other people like, no, 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 like he was clearly expecting a human, right? That was clearly the language there. And then later on, the attitude is, well, did he actually sacrifice her or did he end up just giving her as a nun to the temple? And then some arguments for that would be like, well, he's mentioned Hebrews 11. Guess what? A lot of terrible people mentioned Hebrews 11. Tons of them. All of them, in fact, are pretty messed up, right? I mean, it's just, that's the, we're going to talk about that, the story arcs here in a minute. And so in general, when you're looking at the language used here, he sacrificed his daughter. That's, that's as far I can get on it. And I've read 12 total reasons on why he maybe didn't. But I don't think that's the point of the story either way. I don't think we're left to wonder whether or not he sacrificed his daughter. I think we're left to acknowledge what a ridiculous situation. This is clearly not the character of God. And this is clearly not the relationship God wants to have with his people. This bargaining that feels so much like how you treat Canaanite gods, Phoenician gods. This is not who God is. Interestingly enough, the same struggle Israel had. If this, then this. I'm going to give you a dollar. You give me Oreos. You got me cookie, I got you cookie. That's how it works between you and God, right? That's it. And he said, no, that's not how this works. That's not what works out. And so then, you know, did he sacrifice his daughter? I'm going to say for sure he did, but I don't think it's the main point. Why did he make a vow is what I want to talk about. Jephthah was consumed and conformed by a culture around him. Clearly, he was in and out of several different, uh, different places. He wasn't a guy of great repute. And I think that when we read Romans 12, 1 and 2, it kind of adds an interesting commentary on this. Because in general, Israel what? They struggle to forget the Lord. They mix idols. They're mixing cultures. And I want to be gentle here, but it's so important. If Jephthah can know so much about Scripture, which he does, if you read his story, he does know a lot of the Pentateuch. He knows a lot of Scripture, but he's missing some of these big things. And if he can, because of his conforming in the culture and because of his desire to be whatever is not the actual image of God, how, how could we be doing that? How do you approach your nationalism and your American pride in such a way that maybe has nothing to do with the Lord? How do you approach your, your passionate desires for football or for homeschooling or for eating granola in a way that actually says nothing about the Lord? It just points to what position you want to have in culture. How have you blended the way you do church in a way that makes you have things still circled the way you want it to? It says nothing about the Lord. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices. That's important. Jephthah was making a dead sacrifice. Burned up. Do people live when they're burned alive? No, they die, right? That's a terrible thing. So, right? This is living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect. It says living sacrifices, offer your bodies, this, this metaphor of everything you have. You're offering yourself to God, not the first person that comes out of the house, not some other thing, not some bargaining token. You say, God, man, it's, it's all about you. I'm offering it to you. Then you'll know what God wants. Then you'll be able to understand God's will because you've, you've trusted in him for everything, right? Not conforming. This is why Jephthah made the vow, because he was conforming. He wasn't being transformed with what the Lord was guiding him. Why did he keep the vow? If there were ways to get out of it, surely there was someone in his life that was like, hmm, actually our policy says in Leviticus that you need to, surely someone could have been like, hey Jephthah, 
It's not just Jephthah. We talked about playing the harlot, all of Israel. No one in Israel cared about making this right. No, we don't get that story of Jephthah's advisor came and said, actually, the law states, nah, man, everyone has a faulty image of God. They're mixing it up. This is a message to the church as well. What if I started standing up here and saying things like, you got to wear a green hat and sing these three songs every week for the Lord to accept you? Would we just be like, okay, Pastor David, where's my green hat? Come on. Like, do we come to God's word? That's why every week I say, I can get up here and squawk and say all these things. But if we're not in the word of God, then we're wasting our time because I'm fallible. I could misspeak something. You could mishear something I say. Maybe you're still stuck on me saying I'm going to burn my mother-in-law. We miss things. We misunderstand things. Come back to the word of God. If we're looking this and we're seeking Jesus, we're offering everything as sacrifice to the Lord, then things start making sense. It becomes all about the Lord. That's not what Jephthah wanted to do. Jephthah wanted it to be about him. Israel wanted it to be about them. And we hit this point every week because we struggle with it. This reminds me of how we approach story arcs in general. Does anyone happen to have a lightsaber in the room? This is important. Perfect. Asher, bring that up here. Run! Hurry, the timer's counting down. Okay, good. Fantastic. Ah, Wait, hold on. Ah, now we've arrived. Okay, who has seen Star Wars? Raise your hand. Shelby, already thought about it. Come up here. Who else seen Star Wars? Raise your hand. You're all scared now. Grace, who's seen Star Wars? I need Keith. Peter, let's go. Okay, here, just line up right here. We'll We'll have rolls for all of you. This is really important. Okay, what, what is the basic premise of Star Wars? You have what? Who is the main character? Skywalker. Luke Skywalker. Uh, Shelby, you're Luke Skywalker. No, Peter. P- perfect. Come up here. Peter, how old are you? I am 12. 12. Stand right here. Okay, and then uh, talk to me out there. Luke Skywalker started off as a... a, a yes, uh-huh. Uh, and he was what? He was a farmer living in some no-name place. What was it called? Tatooine. Killing it, Shelby. He lived in Tatooine. He was a farmer, right? But his daddy was important and he had important things. We didn't know that yet. Sorry, spoiler alert, right? And then he needs help. Who comes into his life to help him first? Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan. That's great. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And so he's teaching him the force and, and all these things. And, and we're, as the overall arc, eventually he needs some things, right? He needs to learn the force, right? And he needs to have a lightsaber. So you got a lightsaber, right? So Boy, starting as a farmer, meaningless, little boy, nothing. Yeah, don't press the buttons. It gets confusing. It's a bummer. Yeah, it'll make all sorts of noise. It's a kid's toy. It's okay. Don't get nervous. That's okay. Yeah, none of the buttons make sense. Oh, it's going to keep going, too. Okay, is it? Done. Okay, got it. Woo, yeah, it's, it's, man, that toy will drive you nuts. Buy it for your kids. Anyway, so then he goes, you guys come over here. About halfway through the arc, right, uh, of his story, some things are going, he's got this overall arc, and then he needs to meet a small green person to help him along his way. You dead, right? Obi-Wan dies, but he's a part of it, so you step off, because this is all, oh man, I'm so sorry. So then, he's a part of the story, uh, Yoda, come on. So, you're Darth Vader, go stand over there. So, Yoda comes, do your best Yoda impression. <clears throat> Close enough. High five. Yoda teaches him the force and, and all these other things, and Yoda also dies. You die. Go over there with dead people. The story is still all about who? The story is all about Luke, right? And these people giving Luke what he needs so that he fulfills the, the arc of woo, yay. And then you go fight Darth Vader, take him out. Make, hold on, make your Darth Vader noise. I am your father. Pretty close, yeah. And, <laughs> strike him down. Yeah. Right? He doesn't actually strike down Darth Vader. It's, the story's more complicated. But does Luke win? Yeah. 
Does he, is he victorious over evil? Yeah, and he starts from the beginning as nothing and becomes something and everyone helps him for his story. Who is the main character? Him. Who wins? Him. Luke Skywalker. You get it? This is the arc of the story. Thank them. Give them a hand for being up here. All right, you guys can sit down. This, this whole story arc that we have of, man, I keep pressing that button. Uh, this whole story arc we have, right? You notice here and just think of arc. He is nothing. And then he gets everything he needs. Everything goes perfectly for him. A little hiccups here and there, but ultimately he vanquishes the enemy several times. He blows up ships. He does all these things, right? That is the story arc. And in general, all the stories that you love, we mentioned characters earlier. All of these stories start out that way. All of them in that way. We love the hero arc. We love the story that is about no name, nothing, nobody becoming awesome and destroying and vanquishing. That's the story we want, right? That's the arc we want. All the stories you've read, all the stories you love, they have things, similar themes to that. No one in the Bible, almost no one matches that narrative. Hear me. This is so important because you want that narrative. All of our stories are saying that. All of our movies are saying that. You walk to the Bible and that narrative is not there. There is one character who matches that arc. It is the Lord. And so often we've been taught by everything in our culture that it is about you and you need to find Yoda. You need to find Obi-Wan. You need to find the special sword, Aragorn sword. I forget what it's called, but you need to find all these things to make you awesome so you can do the awesome things. We read the Bible that way. I need to be like King David. I need to be like this judge or that judge. That's not who you are. The story is the Lord's. And so who, raise your hand if you want to do God's will. Right? You want to do God's will, right? So often we approach God's will in the West. And I'm, I'm a child, man. I grew up in the 90s and the big church boom where everyone built a big building and all the youth groups are huge and everything you guys remember about church being awesome. It was like 1990 to 2010. That was my life. I was at every youth camp. I heard every speaker tell me, you're special and you're going to do something to find in your generation and you and you and you. And I was built to believe that God's will was the most important thing for me to do. But if God tells me his will and I do it, then I am Jephthah, who gets glory for doing what God told me to do, and it's all about me. And so many of the people you see in the Bible, you find actually they all stink because it's ultimately about God. And so when we walk into our life and we say, I want to do this and I want to do this and I want to find out God's will, we're so tainted with this story arc of Luke Skywalker and every other story that we've read of Star Wars that says you're nothing and you're going to become something because you're going to run into all of the prophetic ways that bless your life and God is Yoda. And he's going to... That's not the story of the Bible. There's a reason why every arc in the Bible is broken people that ultimately have to be broken before the Lord and look to him. Because it's his story. There's a reason why all of us crave this selfish motif that says, I want to be like God. I want that story. It's Genesis 3. And so we see this arc and we force ourselves into it. And we do it with everything. You have an ideal of how this church should function. You have an ideal of how short I should preach. You have an ideal of how your family should function, how your spouse should work, how the public school system should go, how the government should be run, which president we should kick out. You have an ideal in place. And it's ultimately about you. Or church, it's ultimately about us. We have an idea about us and we selfishly say, our church needs to do this. And if we do this, then we can do this. And if God would just give us this, then we can do this. And it stops being about the Lord. It stops being about just humbly saying, 
We just need your spirit to fill us and give us wisdom. We just need to look to you. Your kingdom come, your will be done. This is why God taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That was not Jephthah's prayer. That was not his vow. No matter how you read Jephthah, no matter how you argue about it, it's about Jephthah. And it's about how awful his life ends up and the awful story that he had and the awful things he did. He's not pointing everything to the Lord. He's using the Lord to point back to himself. That's what happens. And I think many of us are there as well. In Romans 8, 28, we have this famous verse that was shoved down my throat a lot growing up to make me believe that everything works to my good because God loves me. And I want us to read it with a different emphasis, what I think Paul actually intended. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. What if your purposes are wrong? What if your purpose is just that? It's your purpose. And then it lives and dies with you. This is why God tells us to repent and believe in the gospel. Teach us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I've got a list here that I want to throw up. And I think it's really important. If you're married, sometime look at your spouse today and tell them, I'm married for the gospel. If you're a parent, look at your kids and say, I'm a parent for the gospel. If you're a kid, look at your parents and say, I'm your kid for the gospel. If you're in high school, approach high school, tell your parents, I'm in high school for the gospel. I have my job for the gospel. I have my hobby. I twiddle and make fly fishing lure thingies for the gospel, whatever your hobby is. I come to church for the gospel. This is why I have you look at each other and say, you need me and I need you in Christ. In Christ. Do this for the gospel. You have gifts and abilities, things you think you're awesome at, things that just come upon you. Or you say, my gift is to sing, my gift is to preach. It's for the gospel. It's not for you. It's not for your glory. You wake up and you breathe for the gospel. That's why he tells us, come, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I could bring the chalkboard out here and I could have us say kingdom and write it real big. The crux problem we keep seeing over and over in Judges and I can't get past with Jephthah is that he wasn't about who the Lord was and what the Lord wanted. He was about himself. And I think we have a message to consider how we approach the Lord's will. We want the Lord's will to be about us. We want memorial success to be about us. That's our proclivity. We were born into that. We come into this world that says, I am the most important person. I am Luke Skywalker. I am Aragorn. I am Batman. I am Superman. It's not about you. And what if we actually stood before God and we recognized the only reason parenting makes sense is because the God who created all, the objective father, showed us what parenting is. And so I'm a parent for the gospel. And so all the crappy things that happen in parenting, I need to look to the gospel. I'm married for the gospel, not for my happiness, not just to make me happy and to me sexually fulfilled and for me to be so wonderful that I've got to die to my bride who can lift more weights than all of you. That's not why I'm married. I'm married for the gospel. And if you can't look at your life and see how it points to the gospel, you have a problem. So what do you do? Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is. What is the acceptable and perfect will of God? You work that backwards. You want to know what God wants for your life? Don't conform to this world. Be transformed by the patterns, of, uh, by the renewing of your mind. Offer everything you have to God.
Look, look for, his king, for his kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The thing I would ask you this week to do is to take every part of your life, I say this every week, and ask, how does this part of my life declare, thy kingdom come, thy will be done? And where you struggle, then ask, how am I offering this as a sacrifice to God? Do I trust God with my marriage? And, and if I'm trusting Him and I'm struggling, do I come to the church and offer the church, say, hey, I'm struggling with this? Because we talked about last week how we're all together, we're all unified in Christ, we're all one body. We need each other. So if you're still struggling with your marriage, with parenting, with pills, with all these things that I know you're struggling with because you talked to me about them, please continue to be here to seek out one body. Please continue to ask, how is my life declaring thy kingdom come, thy will be done? Because what's going to happen is you're going to fall into the same trap Judges did, the same trap Jephthah did. You're going to fall into the Luke Skywalker principle, the Batman, the Superman. Pick, pick your favorite hero. And you want it to all be about you. And it's not your story. It's his story. And thank God we get to be a part of it. Thank God he didn't expunge us and kick us out and wipe us away. But Jesus took it all on so that we could have a right relationship with God. And so maybe here in a moment as the band comes and we stand and we, we start responding, maybe there's just places in your life you need to open your hands and say, God, in this area, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I want to trust you. I'm struggling. God's laying that area in your heart right now. Your, your high school classes, your, your parenting, your, your addiction, whatever it is. Maybe this is the day. Say, God, I want to trust you with it. Maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you've never believed in him. And God has given you another opportunity to hear what's true. I would beg you, don't exchange the truth of God for a lie any longer. Let's talk about it today. Give your life to the Lord. Maybe you're not connected to a church watching from home, whether you're in this room, if you're not connected to a gospel-centered church that worships Jesus, you got to join. you got to become a member. We need each other. You need me, and I need you in Christ. So as we, as we stand, as we sing, as we respond, I would encourage you to, to ask yourself, what parts of my life are still about me? Where do I see my story arc, and how have I stopped and taken a step back to say, I don't need to bargain with God. I don't need to make rash vows with God. I just need to submit and obey to the Lord. I need to say yes to the marital covenant He's asking me, to the right relationship He's asked me through Christ. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Church, how are we saying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done? Let's pray and then we can stand and sing. God, I pray that uh, as we feel like we keep saying the same thing, struggling with the same thing, God, but we, wanna, we want to worship you. We want to offer all things to you. And I pray that you would continue to refine your gospel, that we would repent and believe in your gospel in all areas of our life. And that would be a continual process as we, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as, as we walk in the manner you've called us to. You continue to refine us, Lord. I pray your spirit would reveal right now areas of our lives, individually, corporately, and in families and marriages, that you would reveal areas that we're not submitted to you. Areas that we consistently see struggle. I pray that you would establish the truth in us that everything in our life exists for the gospel, for your kingdom come and your will be done. And for the people that aren't here, Lord, I pray that we would love your kingdom, love your will, love you so much and love them that we would be reaching out to them to show them your kingdom. God, we trust you. I pray your spirit would guide us as we respond. I pray for your wisdom. Thank you for your great love for us. If you need to pray, if you need someone to talk to, come forward.